We are cracking down on the sanctuary cities that shield criminal aliens, finally. And we are building a wall on the southern border, which is absolutely necessary. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. That was President Donald Trump speaking in August at a rally in Phoenix, Arizona. He added that, if we have to close down our government, we're building that wall, a position he has maintained as both a candidate and as president. What would such a wall cost to build and maintain? Would it reduce crime, smuggling, and illegal immigration, as the president himself claims? Can it even be built along the nearly 2,000-mile border between the two countries? And if so, what are the other costs of a wall for jobs, trade, and the environment? To answer these questions, I'm joined in the studio by Vonda Felbab-Brown, a senior fellow in the Center for 21st Century Security and Intelligence here at Brookings. She is an expert on insurgency, organized crime, urban violence, and illicit economies. She has traveled widely for research, including to Afghanistan, Burma, the Andean region, and Mexico. And she is the author of a new Brookings essay titled The Wall, The Real Costs of a Barrier Between the United States and Mexico. This is part one of a two-part conversation with Vonda about the true costs of a border wall. The second half of our conversation will be published in the next episode. Stay tuned in this episode for another installment of our Metro Lens series, in which Joseph Perilla discusses why services exports, as opposed to goods exports, need to be a more central part of the Trump administration's focus on its Made in America agenda. Special thanks to the Academy of Podcasters at Podcast Movement for honoring the Brookings Cafeteria with the award for Best Education Podcast. I and the entire team that makes this show possible are truly grateful for the recognition. And now, on with the interview. Vonda, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Fred. So we are here to talk about the Brookings essay on the wall. But first, I want to ask you to talk about your interest in this topic in particular, of all your wide-ranging interests around the world. What brings you to this particular story? Well, there are, I would say, several reasons why I am interested in it. One is Mexico is not just our neighbor, but a country of tremendous importance to the United States. Despite President Trump seeking to divide and separate the two countries, the two countries are, in fact, integrated in multiple ways. I have traveled to Mexico often. I have many connections, including emotional connections to Mexico. And of course, Mexico is suffering tremendously from criminal violence, extraordinarily criminal violence that has affected the country and that is very much part of what the relationship between the two countries is about. But the relationship is much broader. It's also about people, about cultural life, social life, about economic exchanges and economic trade. And I would say that I myself am an immigrant to the United States. I was born outside, got my citizenship a number of years ago. But the wall that is being built, in my view, it's not just a physical wall or barrier that the president wants to construct. It's really a much broader project to redefine creed of the United States and to redefine how the identity and the basic ethos of the country in ways that are deeply detrimental to human rights in the United States, to democracy in the United States, and also to U.S. image in the world. 
Now, your essay is about the wall, but it's about a lot more than the literal wall. It's about the border region. And as you were just saying, it's about the culture and the people. You even call it the border area kind of a membrane. What do you think is the most important thing that people should know about this vast border region beyond the fact that you know, it's literally a border between two countries. Right. So, you know, that is the physical border, that 2,000-mile line of separation between the two countries. What people think about as the border region is an area much deeper. It's about 100 miles away from the border in the direction of both countries. That's significant amount of territory, but it's not just significant amount of territory. It's significant amount of people. Major U.S. cities and major Mexican cities are often right side by side next to the border. Some of the houses are very close to each other. And of course, economic life and social life in the border region is deeply integrated. People cross the border regularly. There is trade in both directions. There is investments in both directions, much augmented since NAFTA was established in '94. There are family exchanges. Obviously, Latinos, people from Mexico, constitute a significant portion of U.S. population including legal immigrants, but also at least a million of Americans lives in Mexico on a day-to-day basis. People from the U.S. go to Mexico for medical services as well as for tourism and cultural exchanges. But one of the things that has really changed quite significantly over the past 20 years is that this fluid exchange of people, commerce, ideas, culture, investment, and migration no longer just takes place at the border, at the 100-mile delineation. Very many people of Hispanic, Mexican origins live very far north in places like Chicago, places like the state of Washington, in Boston, in the Northeast region. So that integration, and they are legal residents, but they have families that live in Mexico with whom exchanges occur, and they might go very far down to Mexico. So the exchanges between the two countries are really much more than just about the border, about the physical line, and even beyond the border region. Well, the Brookings essay that you've written delves into a lot of these issues, and I do want to get to that in just a minute. But first, I want to ask you a question I think a lot of people are asking. Does President Trump mean to build a literal wall, 30 feet high, 6 feet deep, along the entire 2,000 miles of the border? There's a map in the essay that one of our colleagues put together, and it shows Roughly half of the border already has some kind of fencing. A lot of the border doesn't because it's in the desert or something. And then there's a large portion, maybe 60% is the Rio Grande between Texas and Mexico. So I know there's some congressmen who have said, well, Trump doesn't literally mean he's going to build a wall. It's all about more money for border security, and it's a metaphor. What do you think? Does President Trump mean to build a wall? So we don't know for certain because the messages from the White House have been so different. But repeatedly, President Trump has stated, including as president, not simply as candidate, that he wants a wall and that he imagines the wall to be made out of concrete. One of the stories that came out from the White House was that he was presented with options of something along the lines of the existing fence, metal barriers, and that he did not like that at all, that his view was that he promised a wall with concrete and mortar, and that's what he wanted to see. 
Now, that commitment by him obviously runs into real realities of what the physical border actually looks like. You already mentioned, Fred, that much of the border is watercourse, in this case Rio Grande. For multiple reasons, it's impractical and runs into legal issues to run the wall inside the river course, not to mention the fact that it will be washed out, you're dealing with tremendous pressure on the physical construction, but also legal issues. And so if he wanted a real cinder brick wall, then that would have to be run inside the U.S. territory. And that also comes into many legal challenges and legal issues. The Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, had its own massive flirtation with constructing a barrier along the the border. And in fact, 700 miles of fence have been put forth. And one of the areas where there is least fencing is Texas, because landowners don't want the wall to run through their territory. Now, an administration can seize the land through eminent domain. That's what the Bush administration did. That's what the Trump administration has available. But they still have to negotiate with the landowners the right compensation, and they can face lawsuits. And in fact, just a decade ago, more than 90 lawsuits from the time are still not resolved, are still in place. So the president has repeatedly said that he wanted a wall, similar to perhaps the Berlin Wall. The legal, physical realities make the challenging, not to mention the the wisdom of that project. Well, let's talk about the price tag of what could be a literal, physical wall. And estimates have varied widely. President Trump has thrown out $12 billion, a report from Senate Democrats suggests 70 billion just to build it, not to build it and then maintain it. Why do you think there's so much variation in these estimates? Well, part of the reason is precisely that no one knows for sure what the wall will actually look like. And although the president seems to be committed to a physical brick mortar type of wall, the initial bids out of the Department of Homeland Security allowed for much greater flexibility. So the material will be one factor, but there are also simply many other uncertainties, such as how much will it cost to seize land from people to compensate landowners along the border? How much will it cost to hire lawyers to be doing those lawsuits? What will equipment at the border be? Will there be radars? Will there be signal intelligence? What kind of flashlights will there be? on the wall. So all of these are vastly unspecified and hence the enormous range of the estimates. And there's the massive question of who will pay for it. Candidate Trump, now President Trump, has said repeatedly that Mexico will pay for the wall. And you address this question in some depth in the essay. How would that even be possible? And what would be the consequences of some of the leading ideas to force Mexico to pay for the wall? Well, so I would start by saying that despite the fact that candidate Trump and President Trump has said that Mexico will pay, Mexico has repeatedly said that it will not pay. That's been uniform position of all current and former Mexican officials. And in fact, there is no easy legal way by which President Trump could force Mexico to pay for the wall. 
And perhaps there is even some realization in the White House that that is the case. Some of the minutes of his conversations with President Peña Nieto showed that although he was trying to persuade the Mexican president to either not talk about the issue or to kind of wink at it, the President Trump understood it might not be feasible. But essentially, the White House and the Republicans have put two mechanisms by which Mexico could be forced to pay for the wall. One is to impose tariffs on NAFTA and on cross-border trade. That is certainly not consistent with NAFTA, and that would be part of either abrogating NAFTA or having to renegotiate it. But Mexico has clearly rejected that. So the U.S. can try to do it. It will have many repercussions, including a trade war with Mexico and many other steps. But it's not straightforward that it can actually be done. The second proposal that the White House has put forward and that candidate Trump often spoke about is to seize remittances that go from the United States to Mexico. Those remittances over the past 10 years have varied between 23 and $25 billion. So that seems to cover the low estimates of the wall, not the higher estimates of the wall. But again, the U.S. cannot act as a mafia government. It cannot simply seize money that belongs to other people. The only way that the U.S. could seize remittances would be to prove that the remittances have involved some sort of criminal activity or that they have come from undocumented workers. Even so, however, that presents legal challenges. So, for example, when U.S. immigration officials arrest an undocumented worker in the U.S., they should and often do demand that he is actually or she is paid compensation by the employer for the work that he or she has performed. They cannot simply arrest the person legally without them getting compensation, even if the person will face deportation. So just illegal status enough is not necessarily legally sufficient to seize someone's money. And on top of that, then one has to sort through what kind of flows, what kind of financial flows are, in fact, illegal, involve some sort of criminal activity that would make it, for example, akin to proceeds from drug trafficking. So the financial forensic challenges of trying to ascertain what money could potentially under some sort of legal legislation be seized are enormous. So I don't think that's a viable path legally, morally, and just frankly from the technical perspective. And the other thing I would, of course, add is that the challenge is already very visible in terms of drug trafficking, which I guess is perhaps one area that we'll be talking about. But the U.S. has repeatedly tried to chase drug traffickers' money, and Mexico has repeatedly demanded that the United States stop the financial proceeds of drug trafficking organizations that are made in the U.S. The bulk of the wharf of the drug trade is made in the U.S., 90% of the value of illegal drugs. And tens of billions of dollars flow from the U.S. abroad to criminal groups in Mexico and elsewhere. And yet the U.S. is able to seize only a tiny fraction of what are clearly illegal money hidden among legal money. So we cannot do it on a much smaller scale, a sort of much more straightforward legal situation with drug money. The challenges of doing that with remittances make it close to impossible. My final comment, of course, is that remittances are very important lifeline of people in Mexico. 
Mexico is a middle-income country. People often talk about many Mexicos. Some parts of Mexico are very prosperous, engaged in entrepreneurial laboratories of innovation, great economic partners of the U.S., Still, more than 50% of Mexicans, depending on the year, live in poverty or extreme poverty, often existing on less than a few hundred dollars a month. And for them, any access to education for their children, very elementary medical services, even food and clothes, often depends on remittances from the United States. And so by seizing those remittances and further impoverishing those people, the United States could both be exacerbating poverty and human misery in Mexico, but also encourage further migration out of Mexico in the United States. Let's take a quick break to hear from Joseph Perilla, co-author of Export Monitor 2017. Hi, this is Joseph Perella, fellow here at the Brookings Metropolitan Policy Program. Perhaps more than any presidential administration in recent memory, trade policy has been dominating the economic agenda of the Trump White House. Let's recall the last nine months. Immediately upon taking office, the president pulled the United States out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. This spring, the White House announced it would be renegotiating NAFTA, negotiations that began last month with Canada and Mexico. And this summer, the White House spent a week featuring a Made in America theme, which highlighted U.S. manufactured goods from all 50 states. What I piece together from these events is a political and economic strategy that foresees large numbers of production jobs returning to the industrial communities that helped elect the president. Key to that vision is export-led growth, and thus the focus on trade. Against this backdrop, a recent report by Nick Marcio and I analyzed goods and services exports in the nation's 381 metropolitan areas, which together account for 87% of national exports. What we found presents some challenges for the vision outlined by President Trump. For starters, after helping power the U.S. economy out of the recession, Exports actually declined from 2014 to 2016, led by a $70 billion decrease in manufacturing exports. Manufacturing's decline hit the industrial Midwest hardest in places like Cleveland, Toledo, and smaller metro areas like Peoria, Illinois. And the Midwest, which generated 24% of national exports, accounted for 48% of the national export decline between 2014 and 2016. Now, manufacturing's recent downturn coincided with export growth in services industries like education, healthcare, tourism, management and legal services, and the tech sector. These were all bright spots in 2016. This reflects a longer-term industrial transition towards services exports, especially in the nation's largest cities where advanced services tend to concentrate. Take Austin, Texas, for example. Austin's largest export sector remains computer and electronics, a manufacturing industry, anchored by several semiconductor facilities. But between 2003 and 2016, services increased as a share of Austin's exports from 25% to nearly 50%, one of the largest increases of any metro area in the country. And a few examples illustrate this transition. 
Dell no longer manufactures computers in Austin, but it does generate intellectual property that accrues to Austin as a royalties export. Visitors from abroad to music festivals like Austin City Limits or South by Southwest, their spending counts as a tourism export. International students studying at UT Austin, that's an education export. Same with a foreigner who gets medical care at UT Austin's medical center. And Austin is not alone. In the nation's 100 largest metro areas, services grew from 40% of exports in 2008 to 47% in 2016, and it's on track to reach 50% by 2020. All of this has implications for current U.S. trade policy. Opening up Asian markets to U.S. services exports was a core policy rationale for TPP, and it remains critical to address following the decision to withdraw. The upshot is that an increasing number of communities in the United States will depend on services exports to further growth and prosperity. It's time to make them a more central part of the Trump administration's Made in America agenda. I'm Joseph Perella. You can find this report on our website at brookings.com. You mentioned drug smuggling and drug trafficking. Let's turn our attention to that. It's a a large part of your essay because that's one of the big issues that the proponents of the wall put forth in justification for a wall is because it'll stop this huge wave of drugs that are coming into this country. Can you first just kind of characterize what is the flow of illicit drugs from Mexico into the U.S., but, you know, in the other direction as well? So the drug issue is one of the priority issue areas for the United States and Mexico, but just one. I want to emphasize right at the beginning that the issue of trade and other exchange of the legal exchange is as important as the illegal one. But nonetheless, that's one of the issues that the president has focused on. Mexico is these days a principal gateway of drugs from Latin America into the United States, and not just from Latin America. Also, some drugs from Asia go through Mexico. Mexico often complains that they are suffering the misfortune of living next to one of the world's biggest drug-consuming markets. For a long time, the U.S. was the biggest. That might not be the case today. Per capita consumption in other countries, including places like Brazil and Argentina, that people don't often think about, is perhaps on par with the U.S. But nonetheless, the U.S. is a very big drug market. And a variety of drugs are consumed in the U.S., traditionally cocaine that originates in the southern cone but also methamphetamines, which might originate in different places. For a long time, they were mostly produced in the U.S., but a crackdown a decade ago pushed a lot of production to Mexico. And these days, of course, heroin and and opiates more broadly, but particularly heroin that is produced from poppies grown in Mexico. And these drugs are smuggled by Mexican criminal groups, of which there are many. The cartels. People refer to them as cartels that, from a sort of economic technical perspective, implies a group that has some capacity to set price. They don't, so they are not technically cartels, but that's the common term used. So some of them are very large cartels, very powerful ones, like the Sinaloa cartel. Um, these days, there are very many smaller criminal groups, and they often work in cooperation with U.S.-based criminal groups such as the Aryan Brotherhood and specific gangs, of which there are very many. 
And of course, the drugs then gets taken over the border into the U.S. And here is where the claim comes that if there is a wall, the drugs would not be able to get across the wall. Now, there are many, many reasons to doubt why that would ever be the case. So first of all, any barrier can be penetrated. And already today, a lot of the smuggling takes place via tunnels that are built underneath the border. Mm -hmm. Chapo Guzman, the most notorious drug trafficker and one of the most powerful drug traffickers over the past two, three decades, pioneered that method. The DHS tender for the wall suggests that it has to be at least six feet deep, but it's not really obvious why one cannot dig a tunnel that goes further deep than six feet. I've read that there was a 70-foot tunnel found somewhere. Absolutely. So some of the most sophisticated tunnels have run the length of half a mile, have electricity, ventilation, have a rail that goes through the tunnel. And they often start in a house on Mexico and go to a house in the United States. So that's one obvious method, regardless of what physical structure there is. But drones are being increasingly utilized as a mechanism to smuggle drugs. They are not as efficient as the most obvious way to smuggle drugs that I'll come to, which is to hide drugs in legal cargo. The problem with drones or the limitation of drones for drug smuggling today is that they can carry fairly small payloads. But first of all, it's only a matter of time before that is overcome, where the experience with drones will allow for much greater bulk smuggling than is currently the case. But also, particularly for heroin, the value of even small amount of heroin is such on U.S. streets that it makes it very worthwhile and profitable. So even small payload can, in fact, generate profits. But the most efficient way to smuggle drugs is to hide drugs in legal cargo. Mm-hmm. And because of trade on which so much of U.S. agriculture, industry, as well as Mexican one depends, there are millions of trucks, cars, and people that cross the border weekly. And so drug traffickers hide drugs in the legal cargo. Sometimes they build specialized compartments in cars. And even in sort of the implausible situation, that the border could be completely sealed, that all of a sudden we get to 100% security and we detect every illegal contraband. Again, it's an implausible scenario. What is to say that you cannot take the drugs by boats and just land deeper in California or deeper in Florida? You describe a tactic that drug smugglers use at the border, like at Tijuana, huge border crossing, thousands of cars every day. Well, they will tip off the border patrol to... One car has the drugs, but then they have five or six other cars in the line that also have drugs. So they let that one car get through. And sometimes they don't even do that at the same port of entry. They tip of agents in one port of entry, but have multiple cars going through multiple ports of entry. The profit margins are very, very high. Producing the illegal drug takes very little requirements. Most of the value of the drug is the price of illegality. That's what constitutes 90% of it. So traffickers can very easily absorb losing substantial amount of drugs because they simply overproduce more or traffic more. So to lose a car by tipping of agents is not a problem if they get several other cars through. And sometimes they also give, of course, false tips off. I also want to emphasize that, of course, the value of losing a truck full of drugs is different for different groups. Smaller groups, of course, can be 
potentially very severely financially hit by that. But especially larger ones have a great deal of variation available to them, a great deal of space available to them in what kind of financial cost they absorb. And so you can have a false tip-off that says, well, you know, this car is carrying cocaine or heroin. Then agents need to seize the car. They need to go through inspections. If they don't know precisely which car it is, they can snarl up traffic in both directions for hours and hours with severe economic cost and a lot of disquiet of people trying to cross the border. And so there are just costs to searching containers, searching vehicles. I want to draw attention to some of the human faces that you include in the Brookings essay. You've done a lot of field work. You've interviewed tons of people for your research across a host of different subjects. In this essay, you include the story of a young man that you met in Ciudad Juarez, which is across from El Paso, Texas. He's Juan. He said he's a 19-year-old. Can you tell me about meeting him and kind of what he represents in terms of the question about the drug trade and smuggling and the wall? So this interview was done back in 2013, which was a period when I was going to Ciudad Juarez repeatedly for field work on what was then a tremendous bloodbath in the city. Between 2010 and 2013, Ciudad Juarez had some of the greatest death rates. Several thousands of people, 2,000 up to 3,000 people, were dying per year in a city of roughly 1 million people. Whereas in El Paso, the murder rate was around one per 100,000, one of the most peaceful U.S. cities in Ciudad Juarez. It was at various points, 80, 90, even over 100 per 100,000. And the violence was stemming from a turf war between the Sinaloa cartel that was trying to take over Juarez as a crucial trafficking point to the United States and wrestle the control over from the dominant cartel, the dominant drug trafficking group there, the Juarez cartel. And into this mix of very violent, extensive, essentially warlike activity between the two cartels, there was also the deployment of Mexican military to the city and federal police. A range of other criminality was taking place, not just homicides, but tremendous amount of robbery, theft, kidnapping. So when I first started going there, 2010, 2011, the city was almost like a ghost town. Many people left, even though it's one of the big maquila areas that NAFTA stimulated with lots of manufacturing production. The main streets were shuttered. There would not be any tourists from El Paso that would regularly go there on a daily basis. The richer Mexican residents of Ciudad Juarez were trying to move into the United States or at least out of the town. Many businesses were shuttered because extortion became prevalent. So Two years prior, in 2011, I remember going with a journalist, many of which were killed in Ciudad Juarez by reporting on crime, around the city in one of the colonias, one of the neighborhoods really hit by the violence. And it was like a tour through a cemetery. People would say, here someone was killed. They would point on the sidewalk two days ago. And here someone was killed three weeks ago. It was really quite extraordinary. And, of course, they wouldn't say, you know, perhaps they knew the person. Often they didn't know who was killed, but they would not say who killed them or why. That became extremely risky. So by 2013, the violence somewhat ebbed, and there were some efforts to engage with people who became involved in the drug fight. As the violence was going through its most excruciating phase, the 
two cartels started hiring a lot of street kids for a variety of functions. You know, they would hire them as they call halcone, which means essentially lookouts, and that is not unique to Mexico and it goes back a long time. But as the fighting became really almost warlike, with extraordinary tempo and extraordinary casualties, the cartels were just looking for many young people to engage as fighters. And so the kids that at the age of 14, 15, 13 were hired as lookouts and perhaps carrying messages, perhaps carrying drugs, were now asked to become killers. And so Juan, whom I met with an NGO that was struggling to work with the gang members, with the cartel members who were trying to come out, was one of the kids that had worked for several years as a halcone, as a lookout, and now saw more and more of his friends to be asked to go kill people. And so the cartels would give them an assault weapon, often without any training, and say, go kill these people. And the compensations became very low. This is not, you know, your sophisticated hitman who gets paid several hundred thousand dollars for killing a target. This was very cheap death rate for as little as 3,000, 5,000 pesos. And if they didn't hit the target, they then risk being killed themselves by the cartel members. So Juan was terrified of the situation and was trying to get out and was working with an NGO to see whether he could get legal employment. His girlfriend, the girlfriend was pregnant, so he felt some desire to be a father who's at least alive and not killed. But it was very difficult for the NGO to operate and, in fact, for people who sought to get out to come out, both because they risk retaliation by the cartels that were still operating, but also because they risk encounters with law enforcement that was often very problematic with massive human rights abuses, but also much undefined practices. And even the NGO was really kind of skirting how comfortable it felt getting any exposure to law enforcement. They were very afraid that the law enforcement officials could arrest them and claim that they provide material support to criminal groups, that they could be liable with respect to the U.S., or that they would be hit by the cartel members. Do you know if Juan was able to make it out? I don't know, and I have not been able to follow out his story. This is a number of years ago. At the time when I met him, he was in the process, but the folks in the NGO often said that many of the stories were not happy, that oftentimes people were pulled back into criminality or arrested, which meant they would be pulled back into criminality. They were trying to place the folks in the maquilas to get them some sort of steady income, that was challenging, too, because often they didn't have the qualifications that many of the maquila employees would have. But also it meant quite grueling hours on the assembly lines that they were not necessarily able to put up with and to the extent that they themselves were drug users that further compounded the problems. You can read the new Brookings essay on the wall at brookings.edu slash the wall. Part two of our conversation will appear in the next episode of the Brookings Cafeteria. In that discussion, I asked Vonda about a wall's effects on crime and violence in America and on jobs, trade, and the environment. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. 
Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. The audio of President Trump you heard at the beginning of the show comes from CNN. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.